If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the 19th century, Britain imagined itself as a bastion of beef-eating carnivores. But at a time when meat-eating was taken as a signifier of personal heartiness and national prosperity, a rebel alliance formed. A ragtag group of religious devotees, health enthusiasts, temperance campaigners, animal rights activists, political reformers and eccentrics. They were all united by one cause – vegetarianism. To learn more about the fascinating world of Victorian vegetarians – I was joined by Dr. James Gregory of the University of Plymouth. When did vegetarianism, as an active lifestyle choice rather than just a necessity, first take off in Britain? Okay, that's a really interesting question. I guess as a Victorianist, I'd be trying to privilege uh, the 1840s with the establishment of the Vegetarian Society in 1847. But uh, lots of scholars, literary scholars, historians, uh, historians of of, uh, vegetarianism have looked at the 18th century and the 17th century uh, in Britain and looked at various people, mystics, 
philosophers, physicians, and they're all uh, investigating uh, uh, reducing the the eating of animal foods. Uh, Some of them are proposing what we would come to describe as vegetarianism. And they're described and describe themselves in in various terms. Some of them are describing themselves as Pythagorean, uh, which means that they're, they're thinking of a sort of uh, I suppose, a, a classical lineage, a classical inheritance from Pyke, Pythagoras and other classical scholars. Uh, but uh, this is the period when people in, in Western Europe are becoming aware of different food ways uh, and the way people are eating, in particular in the Indian subcontinent. So they're looking at what they describe as uh, Brahminical food, and they're coming to appreciate you know, that there's a majority population in India that doesn't eat uh, meat. So all sorts of influences are being discussed. You mentioned there Pythagoras. What does he have to do with vegetarianism? Uh, so he, he's a classical philosopher who is debating the perfect art, the, the correct art for man. And a lot of classical writers are thinking about what was the primitive diet of man, what was the natural diet of man. And so it's often associated with this idea of the diet of, of mankind in the golden age. Ah, so, so you said this idea was floating around by the 19th century in pamphlets, in novels. But what happened in the 19th century that made this a bigger movement, a bigger phenomenon? Uh, well, I guess it's organisation and propaganda, uh, and it's coming out of, of big sort of uh, reform movements, moral reform movements, political reform movements, which get people agitated, uh, which have periodicals devoted to a particular cause, which have public meetings. And I guess for a lot of vegetarians, they're coming out of the temperance movement, which is about uh, trying to reduce or completely remove alcohol uh, as part of, of the diet. Uh, there are also people who've been active in uh, anti-slavery, so they've they've been part of sort of national campaigns moralizing food saying don't have sugar it's you know it's associated with blood it's associated with oppression and uh, and slavery and i guess it's also uh, a response to the modernity that people see around them in a, a rapidly urbanizing industrializing society they're they're confronted with all sorts of stresses and strains of modern life and vegetarianism is being offered as part of the solution to the stresses and strains of everyday life and as a way of purifying the environment, which has become a lot more mucky and dirty and polluted. That's really interesting. And I want to dig into some of those motivations in more detail in a few minutes. But before we do, let's just get a sense of the landscape, really, of Britain at this time. So if we're talking in terms of diet, how ubiquitous was meat in the 19th century? Most people, most medical professionals and ordinary people would say that that meat has to be part of a diet, a mixed diet, that uh, human beings are uh, omnivores. They're not herbivores. They're, they're, they shouldn't be eating just a, a, a sort of plant-based uh, diet, to use uh, modern terms. And I guess it's also an aspiration for most people to continue their meat intake, if not to increase it. So uh, a, a diet with a lot of meat is associated with prosperity, prosperity nationally and individually. And it's seen by people who look at the national diet as a sign of increasing prosperity. People uh, who are looking at food intake uh, across Europe and the world are very proud of the increased meat consumption for, for Britain in the 19th century, particularly as population is increasing, uh, the meat intake uh, per capita is increasing as well. So so meat as part of a sort of index of civilization is important. But then you have to look at the reality for, for ordinary people in their diet. When would they consume meat? Uh, how would they consume it? And the, the meat of poor people uh, would be uh, sausages. And there's a whole sort of debate 
debate about what's in sausages. Is it cats? Is it is it horse? Is it is it diseased? Uh, you know, putrid carcasses and things like that. So sausages are quite dangerous, and they're they're part of the repertoire of of uh, vegetarian propaganda later in the century. There's one uh, tract called the, the the Peril of Pork, which talks about the link between diseased animals and disease in human beings. Something probably we're quite aware of with all of this concern about uh, you know avian flu and COVID and its transmission from animal food. You know, to get back to that question about what do people actually eat, it's also gendered as well. The idea being that uh, for the the breadwinner, the the hard working male in a working class family, they would consume the calorific uh, meaty food, this idea that men need to have uh, the energy foods. And meat is seen as an energy food. Again, something that we're sort of aware of nowadays, particularly when we think about uh, the cost of fuel and the uh, cost of heating ourselves and our environment. Uh, fatty foods, lardy food is is part of the everyday repertoire. Uh, people are used to a lot more fatty, suety, filling food uh, in the 19th century. In an age before central heating, you need to get that food in you just to keep your body warm and healthy. Yeah, so there's an assumption that if you're not eating meat at this time, it's because you can't afford it, you can't access it. It's not because you're choosing not to. That's true. Uh, I mean, by the early 19th century, a group that we we should add to the mix of people before the vegetarian society are those who are uh, dabbling in vegetarianism because it's associated with higher pursuits, intellectual pursuits, poetic pursuits. And they're uh, they're people like uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, the poet, and quite a lot of the Victorian vegetarians uh, refer back to Shelley as an exemplar, somebody that they've read and been inspired by. So if you add that to the mix, then vegetarianism does become associated with uh, philosophical, dreamy, sentimental, poetic people, not perhaps hard workers, the practical-minded. So there's loads of different motivations that you've already mentioned for vegetarianism. Can we talk about some of them in perhaps a little bit more depth? So you hinted at there being a political aspect to this. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I suppose food and what we choose to eat is perhaps inherently uh, political because of the symbolism that we attach to food. So uh, one of the great figures uh, in terms of identity for the British nation, or certainly the English identity, is John Bull, this great figure of uh, British power. Uh, and he's he's corpulent, he's perhaps even gouty, and he's being used in the French Revolution to mark off uh, British prosperity in the British Empire against the French who eat garlic and snails and frog's legs uh, and little uh, soup and, and ragus and things like that. So there's the politics of food in that sense. And then there's the politics of food in terms of uh, the way states uh, accumulate money. So taxation, the taxation of food. We have protection in place for British agriculture. So we have the Corn Laws. And one of the great precursors to uh, the vegetarian movement as a successful agitation was the, the successful attempt to repeal the Corn Laws, and this had happened by 1846. So the backdrop to the Vegetarian Society in 1847 is some of the leading figures in the vegetarian movement had been associated with uh, repeal of the Corn Laws. So that's one other political dimension. And another question in terms of food and politics uh, would be self-sufficiency for the nation. Are we growing enough food? Are we reliant on food imports? Again, something with uh, contemporary uh, resonance. Vegetarianism is there as one of the cause of some political radicals in the 1840s as well. So this is the era of the, the Chartist movement, which is calling for political reform, parliamentary reform, to give ordinary working people 
uh, ordinary working men, that is, the vote and reform parliament. And although most Chartists are quite resistant to the association of this this clear set of uh, charter points with other ancillary concerns like temperance and education and indeed vegetarianism, there are a number of of Chartists uh, who do uh, see vegetarianism as part of self-reform, as part of the the sort of project uh, more broadly of reform. That question of self-sufficiency is an interesting one because one of the key issues in vegetarianism today or the vegetarian movement is, of course, sustainability and the environment. Were there any environmental concerns floating around at this time? This is, in the 19th century, a period when people are increasingly aware of the impact of man on the globe. They're fascinated with what they can do in terms of importing uh, British animals, British plants, flora and fauna to to other parts of the world as part of the sort of British empire. And they're doing that. So lots of of, uh, British cattle and sheep and other things are being exported to reshape the globe, largely to reshape it for British bellies. There's a a wonderful phrase by the scholar Chris Otter called uh, global meatification. And this sort of uh, focus on reshaping the world to produce cheap meat for British tastes. So uh, beef and mutton from Australia and uh, South America and New Zealand. This is all reshaping the globe and we have the consequences to this day. Uh, At the same time, there are people who are concerned at the threat of modernity, environmental change to to wild birds. Uh, There are campaigns against uh, killing seal for luxury uh, seal fur coats. And and these are sort of later Victorian developments. There's a sort of vigorous campaign to get fashionable women to stop wearing dead birds on their heads. So, uh, you know, attacking what's called murderous millinery. And so vegetarianism is part of this sort of animal welfare concern. At the same time, I suppose, you know, the vegetarian ideal is of man in harmony with nature. Uh, And so all the sort of imagery of the vegetarian future is about man as part of the natural world. Uh, And part of it is, you know, associated with changes in the way man is seen in relation to nature post-Darwin. There's also an awareness that... Uh, the urban environment has, uh, and suburbanification as well, has has changed the the British landscape. This presentation of big uh, advertising hoardings in the countryside, the the pollution of the waterways, the pollution of air as well, and, and that's not just something that the vegetarians are aware of. There's a there's a wider uh, awareness of what's happening to the air in in uh, in in the cities and towns because of you know the burning of fossil fuels and what this does to ordinary people's clothes their their houses interiors and exteriors and therefore also to their lungs as well so I, I would see vegetarianism as part of this broader concern with polluted environment but in terms of ecology as we would see it nowadays I think that's more of a 20th century concern. Uh, and one of the things actually that vegetarians are confronted with by their critics is, okay, uh, if you're not going to eat all of these animals that you've domesticated, what do you propose to do with your cats, dogs, horses, uh, cattle, uh, all the animals that have been beasts of burden, that have been transport devices, that you know that have uh, allowed you to get uh, about in the modern environment? Uh, and this is what you know. One of the dilemmas for vegetarians uh, in the period. There's one early vegetarian. Uh, 
William Horsell, who's saying, look, let's just leave this to God and the balance of nature to sort out in the end. We won't work out the logistics. We'll just do the thing and see what happens. So in 1847, the Vegetarian Society was founded. What can you tell us about its formation and the motivations behind establishing the society? Did the Vegetarian Society take one of these lines as its kind of modus operandi, or was it drawing on all of these motivations? I think it's drawing on a number of motivations. So there's the there's the motivation of cruelty to animals. Uh, it's it's wrong to kill animals. There's the motivation linked to that, which says that, uh, that the Bible uh, allows you uh, or or tells you not to. Uh, eat animals and and turn to a plant-based diet. So religion is one of the important strands throughout the the rest of the the Victorian vegetarian uh, movement's history. Uh, There's the argument of economy as well. So uh, 1840s in retrospect are going to be described as the, the hungry 40s. So It's quite attractive to offer something which is both uh, having claims to be entirely uh, health-sustaining, but also it's economic, it's cheaper than than animal foods. I think it's a continuation of temperance. So vegetarianism can be seen as temperance, uh, further temperance, so reducing stimulants. So so there's a strand in vegetarianism which is saying, concentrate on higher things. We're not just a belly on legs. And that if we we avoid animal foods, which are known to be stimulants, uh, then this will be good for us. There's, there's There's a strand of of, uh, I suppose, proto-vegetarianism, which is linked to celibacy and control of the passions. And this is where a number of groups come in in 1847 and are the, you know, the originating uh, groups to the Vegetarian Society. And a group that I haven't mentioned yet uh, were uh, the cowherdites. Uh, I'm always uh, amused when I look at vegetarians and they have these uh, animal-related names. So William Cowherd uh, in the early 19th century establishes uh, a breakaway Christian Christian denomination influenced by uh, the Swedish uh, mystic Emanuel Swedenborg. And they're called the Bible Christians or the Cowherdites. And they're based in Salford and Manchester. And the Cowherdites are going to bring probably half of the original members of the Vegetarian Society when it's formed. But then you also have uh, temperance figures like uh, William Horsell, who I've mentioned before. And, and he's one of these people who would be quite uh, scary for, for people in the 1840s to look at. And I've seen an early uh, daguerreotype, of an early photograph of him, and there he is looking very earnest and serious with his long hair and his beard. And long hair and beards for, for British men in the 1840s is pretty avant-garde. It's associated with, uh, you know, with foreigners, with the East, uh, uh, with ancient uh, prophets and, and, and strange people. And there uh, William Horsell is. Uh, but he's actually coming out of it partly from reading Shelley, but he's a practitioner of the water cure. Uh, so he's a hydropath. So he's one of these physical Puritans who is talking about uh, water rather than bleeding and mercury and all the other sort of things that conventional medicine are, are doing to the body. So um, hydropathy is part of the background. And the reason why that's um, important uh, almost by, uh, you know, by default is that they're, they're meeting in Ramsgate in his hydropathic establishment, uh, which is run by, by him and his wife, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, the Vegetarian Society could have uh, been founded in Manchester and Salford or in London, where there was a group of, of early pioneering vegetarians as well before 1847. But they, they all agree that the meeting where it's going to be formally announced and established is going to be in Ramsgate in, in Kent. And then it's being promoted in uh, the the first periodical with the word vegetarian in its name, the vegetarian advocate. But actually the the centre 
of organised vegetarianism in the 1840s, 1850s sort of migrates back to Manchester and Salford. The leading figure is a young chap called James Simpson. And I want to bring him into the picture because he's a cowherdite. He's a um, enlightened employer. He's inherited a calico factory in Accrington in Lancashire. But he's also educated in, in Berlin. And he's bringing to his own vegetarian propaganda links to modern day science. So the science of chemistry and nutrition. Scientists like Eustace von Liebig are being cited by the vegetarians from the 1840s onwards in their in their pamphlets and propaganda. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, from Shelley and earlier, uh, the arguments of vegetarianism bring in things like comparative anatomy. They look at the stomachs of herbivores and mankind. They look at the jaws and the teeth. Uh, and they also uh, start to look at uh, at the constituent elements of foodstuffs and how it's dealt with by the human body. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Studying vegetarianism allows you to, to see some really interesting people. And uh, one of them that I looked at was somebody called William Allen uh, MacDonald. He's somebody who's kicked out of the British Library reading room uh, because he's wearing reformed clothing and sandals. Uh, so <laughs> he's not allowed to study in the British uh, Library. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 40% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. So you've got a huge background landscape here. So you've got people with a background in science or an interest in science. You've got people with a background or interest in religion. You've got politics in the mix here. You've got health. So all of these people, how were they viewed 
by the rest of society? Were they generally seen as outsiders or were there some more establishment figures in there? Were they generally middle class? What can we say about them as a whole or is it impossible to generalise? Um, I don't think it's impossible to generalise. And I think uh, in terms of vegetarian research, it's quite difficult to sort of gauge what responses at a local level and also national response beyond the London Times, Punch magazine uh, and other uh, you know, big national newspapers and periodicals. But but mentioning Times and Punch, these are influential middle-class opinion formers or expressions of, of opinion in the 1840s and 1850s. And they have a ball with vegetarianism because they see it as the latest fad. You know, it's a continuation of teetotalism, which, which most people think is quite avant-garde and extreme anyway. Uh, because if you're saying no alcohol, you're immediately sort of putting a downer on party time and sociability. And, you know, it's there in the Bible. What does Jesus do? He does miracles with water and, and, and bread. And, and it seems to be part of, you know, Christian ritual. Uh, so vegetarianism comes along and it's yet another sort of puritanical killjoy exercise. It can be associated with sort of uh, mental aberration as well. And so what something uh, like the Punch uh, satirical magazine does, it has poetry, uh, little snippets, little paragraphs reporting on vegetarian uh, banquets and propaganda. And they're really poking fun. They're poking fun uh, at the vegetarian saying, look, uh, these prized specimens of vegetarianism, they're turning into vegetables. There's a wonderful cartoon showing them exhibited, uh, like, you know, exhibits in the Great Exhibition that they've turned into turnips and gooseberries and things like that. Uh, so they're they're amusing. And I think, you know, you only have to think about how vegetarianism perhaps 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago would be dealt with. Say in a family circle, if you were coming out as a vegetarian, there might be all, all sorts of concerns about your health. Were you going to be uh, able to, you know, resist illness? Were you going to be able to do proper work? And these are the debates at the time, because people are, are absolutely certain that to be a vegetarian would restrict your energies, would have major implications for uh, for health if you if you were pregnant women, if you were children as well in terms of development. I should say, though, that, you know, for, for most sort of middle-class uh, children, their diet when they were children, it was a sort of light diet in which meat wasn't uh, a large part of the diet. So some ways in which vegetarianism could be accepted, say, for children, uh, maybe for certain, uh, you know, invalids and maybe uh, late in life uh, sort of uh, for elderly people. But in general, vegetarianism in the 1840s, 1850s, it's either seen as, as funny, as ridiculous, or a, a more serious uh, viewpoint is to say this is a sign of the, the latter days when false prophets will arrive uh, uh, trying to persuade people against eating animal foods. And, and this is to hark back to the Bible and the importance of the Bible. In one of St. Paul's letters to, to Timothy, there is this dis, uh, discussion of the latter days when all sorts of false spirits and prophets will arise. There's a sense in which the response in the 1850s, uh, late 1840s, from a very uh, you know, orthodox religious uh, majority is that this this isn't required of of uh, us as Christians. It, it's probably bad for our health, and it can be seen along with things like bloomerism. You know, so so women not wearing dresses. Where will it end, really? Mm. You mentioned earlier in our discussion about the meatification of the world for British tummies. Presumably, those who were promoting that agenda weren't very happy about vegetarians. There's all sorts of things going on. There's a broader food history and, and food experimentation. So, you know, there are moments say, in the 1860s where there's uh, major cattle diseases and this is affecting uh, pricing and availability of food. So there are experimentalists who are saying, let's eat horses. 
let's eat horses like the French do. Uh, and so there's societies and public banquets and things like that. Um, I think one of the interesting things when you look at at the vegetarians, though, when they do their statistics and they look at food production, and this is the age of statistics, when, when people are accumulating statistics on national diet and national productivity and all sorts of things, they're looking at how many people can be supported uh, on an acreage uh, of, of, of the land. And they're saying, this is ridiculous. You're Not only are you producing so much grain, which is then going into making beer, and for, for temperance vegetarians, this is terrible, but they're saying, you know, think how much um, can be produced uh, in terms of potatoes and pulses and beans and things like that compared with uh, with meat. By the late 19th century, the argument from defenders of meat will be saying, ah, but meat, it's concentrated food. It, it's like muscle. It's got uh, all of what we would call micronutrients now. So it, it's, a, it's a wonder food that, that mankind, in order to be vigorous and virile, needs to have. But the vegetarians, when they're looking at agriculture, one of their long arguments in the 19th century into the 20th century is about how can we support a growing population uh, and I suppose hovering over the debate from the early 19th century is the figure of the Reverend uh, Thomas Malthus and this Malthusian crisis of population outstripping uh, the ability of, of nature to support it unless you exercise birth control and limitations on, on the food that you eat. In the late 19th century, there are some vegetarians who are interested in Malthusian birth control, so um, artificial ways of limiting uh, population. But this is not something that's in the mainstream and it's advocated by the vegetarians. So the Vegetarian Society, what kind of activities did they get up to? Uh, there's there's lots of things. And I guess with vegetarianism, you can, I suppose, be a vegetarian in the theory. And a lot of sort of celebrity Victorians in the late 19th century are being interviewed and saying, oh, yes, I'm theoretically a vegetarian. But to be a vegetarian, you actually have to do the stuff. You have to cook it. You have to eat it. You have to consume it. You have to buy vegetarian uh, goods. If we think about vegetarianism as, as diet and food. So some of the things that the vegetarians do publicly to gain attention and show it's entirely practical and tasty and attractive is to put on public banquets where uh, members of the public can see that A, vegetarians are healthy, they're fat, they're not thin and, and, and uh, wasting away, uh, but they're healthy, they're men and women, uh, and they're enjoying uh, their food. So you have public banquets, uh, particularly at anniversaries, uh, and you have to think of the whole space being decorated to promote the cause with sort of vegetarian supporting mottos and flowers and all sorts of decorative finishes. And then I suppose that the other side of that is cookery classes, cookery classes for all sorts of groups, but particularly for uh, working people to get them thinking about uh, uh, cooking vegetarian dishes and to be economic uh, with their food. And so in some ways, this is part of uh, a wider picture of sort of soup-related philanthropy, where the working class are told, you don't know how to cook, you waste your food, uh, uh, you waste your money on food that you can't afford, you've got tastes which are which are uh, dodgy, you know, you're liking your food highly spiced and pickled and things like that, and you just can't afford it. Uh, so lessons for the poor might be another aspect of the, the vegetarian campaign. But there's a great uh, sort of um, confidence in the 19th century uh, in speaking to people in public lectures to go out and about uh, into the provinces to 
uh, towns to cities and give a talk about uh, vegetarianism. And it might be sort of illustrated uh, uh, and come with uh, specimens of food. There might be all sorts of exciting posters showing diseased meat uh, and and the body, you know, anatomy as well. So the vegetarians do quite a number of things in the late 19th century when uh, they're being particularly adventurous in London. So there's vegetarian rambling societies, vegetarian cycling clubs. Uh, Partly it's about showing how athletic and sociable the vegetarians can be. So they're getting on their new kit, the bicycle, and going out and about. Uh, There's uh, particular organisations for children as well, because obviously it's important that you want to have a a, a new uh, generation of vegetarians and show that it's entirely practical to to be a vegetarian within a family and raise your children uh, as healthy um, uh, vegetarians. I'm very intrigued by these banquets and cookery classes. Do we have any evidence of Victorian vegetarian menus or dishes? Was there any sense of having meat alternatives or was it purely vegetable based? (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the things is that vegetarians start to be um, anxious that they've they settle themselves with an unattractive name. Because if you say vegetarian to most people in the 1840s, they're going to think it's cabbages, it's vegetables. And, you know, the whole world of plant-based food that we're all familiar with uh, nowadays in the age of tofu and polenta and things like that, uh, most people in the 1840s, 1850s in in Britain are not thinking about these sorts of uh, foodstuffs. So the, the vegetarian movement, if it does anything in the 19th century, is partly educating people about what sort of variety in food materials and food preparation there is. I've got uh, a number of vegetarian recipes and cookery books and listeners uh, can access this uh, online for free. There's brilliant sites where you can get 19th century vegetarian texts. Those link to the vegetarian societies themselves nowadays. There's lots of historical material. But if you go onto somewhere like uh, I don't know, Google Books or Archive.org or the Hathi Trust or, or the Welcome uh, Collection in, in London, they've digitised vegetarian cookery books. They've also digitised other cookery books like Mrs Beaton's Book of Household Management, which by the 1880s is including uh, vegetarian uh, cookery. So you can go online and you can find and try out for yourselves these vegetarian uh, recipes. I've got one in front of me, and this is by uh, Shandos Lee Hunt Wallace. It's called 300 166 vegetarian menus and cook's guide and i've got it open uh in my edition it's page 86 87 and it's got november uh, november the 22nd so let's see what's happening on november the 22nd according to her so so she's starting with um the, the, lots of french words here so savory nuile past uh, quenelle stewed tomatoes with minced eggs capsicum butter and sauce so here we've got you know quite quite on trend uh, flavored butters uh, we've got uh, egg minced up with stewed tomatoes all very healthy which, which i guess would be kind of scrambled egg dish then. well uh, the the, uh, the vegetarians are into a lot of eggs and milk and butter and sometimes they they like hard-boiled eggs and they mince them so here it's probably chopped up ah. uh, uh, so that's part of the dish so remember this is victorian dining so that might be the starter then you've got baked coconut souffle mm. with orange cream so okay. that's one of the that's one of the puddings but this is victorian style so you have a number <laughs> so apple gateau served with custard uh, and then uh, tomatoes with lemon juice, bread, Lincoln cheese. So you, you've got cheese, according to her, as part of the diet. And then you'll have, following that, uh, fresh and dried fruits and nuts. And and uh, I notice here, she's serving it with cinnamon and banana beverage. 
Ooh, see, this all sounds quite adventurous and it is, and quite tasty. Yeah. So, what's interesting by by the time that this is published in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, there are tinned foods, so that you can have exotic tinned fruits like lychees and mangosteen. Uh, you're obviously having fruit being imported as part of the empire, so uh, luxury items like fresh uh, citrus and bananas. Uh, some people are using green bananas and frying them as well as a sort of uh, savoury equivalent. There's there's recipes that are being brought to the attention of readers of the vegetarian journals like like okra. They're talking about uh, bean curd as well, Japanese bean curd. So what we know as tofu is being discussed in vegetarian circles in the 1880s, 1890s. They're talking about polenta. They're obviously aware of things like pasta and, and olive oil. And olive oil, you know, right into the 20th century, olive oil is really in, in a British context seen as, as a medicine as something for health. So to use it in cookery as an alternative to butter. And and that's going to, you know, bring us, I suppose, to one of the dilemmas for vegetarians in this period is the inevitable question in a lecture when you're trying to persuade the unconverted about the, the good of vegetarianism. People will say, well, you eat eggs. Uh, you eat you eat milk, don't you? Uh, and you're wearing shoes made of leather. So all of this debate, uh, which is going to come uh, uh, to be known as, as veganism after the 1940s, it's going to be there as a question about vegetarian consistency or vegetarian hypocrisy. So the vegetarians uh, from actually before the vegetarian society, some of them are thinking, well, how do I comb my hair if I'm not using tortoiseshell? What, what clothes should I wear? What buttons? And you've got to think, you know, leather and animal derived products are in, in a whole variety of things that aren't just being eaten. They're there as sort of uh, leather straps to, to move wheels and, and machinery in factories. So substitutes for, for animal labour, which is horse-powered and, and horse-driven. So vegetarians are a challenge not just uh, for the tables uh, and dining habits, but also what people wear and how people get uh, out and about. But in terms of the dietary and what people eat, it varies. You can get very sort of puritanical vegetarian guides, which are saying uh, this is a diet where you can live for a penny a day. So there's economic uh, food dietaries, and then there's uh, food for upper class, middle class, which is saying, really, we can we can do similar elaborate cuisine. And you were talking about, uh, I think, mimicking meat. Uh, and that that is that sort of uh, criticism of the vegetarians in this period that Either they're like children eating uh, sweet jellies and blancmanges and milk puddings, and it's just an excuse for them to eat sweet puddings. That's what they're doing, or that they, you know, they they're still enamoured of the old flesh pot, so they're having their 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 nut cutlets shaped in, in, you know, like a pork chop or something like that. And I haven't really mentioned with you yet the sort of public dining that's available, because obviously. To, to a large extent, vegetarianism is what you do domestically at home. But how do you sustain, you know, your vegetarian diet when you're going out to work or, you know, uh, yeah, public dining? So vegetarian restaurants become a really important part of uh, conveying the message, trying to make a profit in, in the cause. Uh, and they become really interesting sites for all sorts of activities outside vegetarianism, including the suffragette movement in the Edwardian period. Lots of associations in London uh, between uh, suffragettes and vegetarian dining places as places to, to gather and plan and also to celebrate when you're released from jail after doing your time as a suffragette. It's been really fascinating, I think, to hear about vegetarianism, but also all the other alternate lifestyles that were swilling around in the mid-19th century, because I think a lot of 
people's public perception of the Victorians is of very close-minded, mm. boring, prudish, staid people. And this yep. really shows, doesn't it, that the Victorians were very open-minded and there was a lot of ideas floating around, weren't there? Yes, and in, in some ways, the vegetarians, the problem is there's too many ideas floating around. Uh, sometimes it's easy for critics to say, oh, vegetarians, they believe in strange ideas like the Great Pyramid, they're spiritualists, they're flat earthers, uh, they're, uh, they're sandal-wearing. I mean, uh, the, I suppose the most famous association between vegetarians and sandal-wearing is going to be George Orwell in the 20th century saying in, a, in the 1930s, you're vegetarian, fruit juice uh, drinking, sex maniac, sandal wearing, sort of socialist of a certain type. And he has in mind uh, a late Victorian figure uh, called Edward Carpenter. And Edward Carpenter is a really interesting uh, guy. He's he's a homosexual who's trying to promote um, the validity of same-sex union. He's a vegetarian. He's against uh, violence and cruelty. So he's going to be one of these figures who's supporting general humanitarianism in the late 19th century. And it's true that there are some people like Carpenter who are aware of all sorts of uh, inequalities in the world. There are a few vegetarians who give their support uh, against racism in the British Empire. And it's interesting, somebody like Mahatma Gandhi, one of a number of of Indian students who are coming over to study in the centre of empire, they become acquainted with and aware of a Western fascination with their own uh, Hindu vegetarian practice. And, and, and Gandhi uh, becomes part of a group of, of London vegetarians. One of his friends is uh, Josiah Oldfield. Oldfield's one of these people that we might uh, look at photographs of, and he looks very sort of bearded and mustachioed and, and intense. He's, he's uh, mystically inclined, but he's also a, a leader in the late 19th century of the uh, Society Against Capital Punishment. So I think, you know, when we think of vegetarianism, we, we can think of the mystic uh, implications, the, the religious avant-garde like spiritualism, but we can also think about a continuation of vegetarianism's anti-violence, anti-cruelty strand, whether it's to do with animals, whether it's to do with the treatment of prisoners, whether it's against capital punishment, uh, corporal punishment, flogging. And, uh, you know, so I, th- I think when you look at the vegetarians, whether it's in the mid-Victorian period or the late Victorian period, you can see some interesting political associations and lifestyle associations Well, you know, going back to the land, uh, setting up colonies where you may or may not be making sandals as well. Studying vegetarianism allows you to, to see some really interesting people. And uh, one of them that I looked at was somebody called William Allen uh, MacDonald. He's somebody who's kicked out of the British Library reading room uh, because he's wearing reformed clothing and sandals. Uh, so <laughs> he's not allowed to study in the British uh, Library. But he's, you know, he's producing really earnest, uh, social reform texts as well and, and continues in that vein in the 20th century as well. Fantastic. And finally, obvi- obviously the story of vegetarianism, it stretches on far beyond the Victorians. Do you think that we can see the influence of this early vegetarian movement being continued into the 20th and even the 21st century? Or do you think that today's vegetarianism is something totally different. That's an interesting question because, uh, of course, the vegetarians are really proud of their lineage. They they want to say that it's not a new concern. It's not just some modern fad, uh, you know. And the vegetarians are constantly being described as faddists. I think there's an ecological and environmental awareness that's been extended in our in our modern uh, times. There's uh, you know been lots of. Um, uh, sophisticated theorizing about man uh, uh, and the relationship to the natural world, which which uh, is a 20th century development. A lot of what I've 
uncovered when I've looked at the vegetarian movement, uh, I see in the 20th century and 21st century that vegetarianism is often associated with religious and mystical ideas. So it's not just about nutrition. It's not just about health. It's not just about economy. All sorts of claims are being made uh, for you when you have a vegetarian diet in terms of your, uh, you know, I suppose, clearing the mind and thinking about uh, higher thoughts. I think the vegetarians are pioneers uh, of all sorts of things which are going to feed into vegan practice and vegan lifestyles. So they are not just thinking about foodstuffs. The Victorian vegetarians share a lot with present-day vegetarians of a sort of animal welfare um, uh, perspective in terms of questioning you know, experimentation on animals. So if I'm thinking about similarities between the vegetarian movement now and then, there is still a, a sense in which vegetarians have been, you know, providers of a good, good humour and satire. If you want to have a strange character, you you say something about their their food habits, their vegetarianism. It sets them apart as well. And the vegetarians were aware that they were being set apart. They were setting themselves apart from the majority. But one of the things that's interesting when when you look at the vegetarians in the late nineteenth century, they're confident that their diet is going to be the diet of the future. They're talking about the diet of the twenty first century or the twenty second. Second century and saying it will be increasingly vegetarian. That was James Gregory. To read a feature by James on this subject, head to historyextra.com and search for Veggie Victorians. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.